Well, as it's so good to see all of you, I want to uh, ask you, as you make your way to your seats, if you could take out your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Hebrews. Last week, we were privileged to hear a great message kicking us off in this series, a great message about the glory of God and and the the worth of Christ. So by way of context, I know we have a number of guests here this morning, and again, welcome to each one of you. Um, by way of context, context is important so that we can understand something, and the context for this letter, as we heard last week, was that this letter was written to people who were considering turning their backs on Christ. This was a letter written by uh, by someone with a pastoral heart. It could have been the Apostle Paul. We're not exactly sure simply because the author doesn't identify himself in this letter. But this is a letter written uh, perhaps to a small church, maybe a, a group of small house churches, people who were being persecuted for their faith. It was one thing in this culture to be Jewish, because the Jewish faith religion had been around for a long time. But to claim the name of Christ, to call him Lord, was very costly, even as it is to us today. And in the costliness of the persecution that they were experiencing, Some of these dear people had been shifted out of their homes and out of their communities through this persecution. Some of them had had lost their possessions. They were seriously considering turning their back on Christ. And so God, by the Holy Spirit, inspired this letter to be written to these dear people who were considering turning their back on Christ because of how hard it was to follow him. And God, by his spirit, inspired this word, all, all the chapters of this letter, to lift their eyes, to turn their gaze, because they had forgotten who Christ was. They had forgotten about what he had done and what he had promised to them. And so this letter is actually um, this wonderful chapter after chapter. It's this Wonderful exploration of the glories and the perfections and the holding power of Christ. This morning we have a unique privilege to, to view Christ as compared to the angels. It's, it's quite an interesting study. And I, our prayer this morning is that, that we will, will come together, we'll, we'll hear the word of God. And that we will be strengthened in our understanding of who Christ is as compared to the angels. We don't often think a whole lot about angels and we don't exactly uh, relate with them very easily. But And we'll get into that in just a moment. But just as we read the word, what he's doing here is comparing the worth of Christ to those dear people who are struggling Uh, thinking about turning their back on Christ. And God has preserved this for us today because there are times when we do the same thing, when following him is hard, and we might like to take the easy route. 
he's comparing the worth and value of Christ to those of the value of angels. So I'm reading Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 14 verses. As I read, uh, what you're about to hear is distinct from everything else today in the sense that these are the very words of God. This is wholly inspired. So let us attune our hearts to the word. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Lord, we ask now at the outset of our time to, uh, to help us to understand why this exists in your word. What, what is the purpose of this particular passage? Why have you preserved it for us this morning? You've preserved it so that we can exalt in Christ and in his glory. And we pray for wisdom and the ability to hear and the ability to speak for him. So help us now, we pray together in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So let me ask you this opening question. What, when is the last time you thought about an angel? Now, we're pretty close to Christmas, so perhaps you would say, eh, it's not been that long. It was just at Christmas time that I was thinking about an angel. Okay, we'll go back to November. Um, back in November, when's the last time you thought about an angel? Probably most of us don't think about angels on a regular basis. I do confess that I do not think about angels all that often. And so we have to ask the question as we approach the text this morning, okay, why 
Why is the author taking, you know, a significant amount of real estate here, uh, a lot of time to talk about angels? Well, what, what do angels do? And what role do they play in the historical salvation narrative of God? Um, to answer those questions, so here's the question. What are angels and what do they do? Uh, we'll talk about this for a few moments and then we'll move on to Christ. Well, the Bible talks about angels, references angels. You may be surprised to hear this. Uh, over 260 times. 160 times in the New Testament and over 100 in the Old. Um, the title angel literally means messenger. So angels are God's messengers. They bring messages to mankind. Angels are powerful, mighty beings. So, so let's put out of our minds for once and for all, thank goodness, the uh, tiny naked little cherubim-like, you know, babies that we see with the little harps. Those are not angels. They, they're, they're, they're nothing like angels. Angels are mighty. In fact, when angels come, you'll read this in the scriptures, when angels come, um, what do they typically have to say the first thing before they deliver their message? You say it. What? Fear not. Yeah. I mean, they're, they, they induce terror. In fact, at times, they're so magnificent in their glory that people uh, want to worship them. And, and angels, at times, have to stop people from worship, worship because they're not entitled to the worship that is due only to God. So, so angels occupy a significant place in the biblical narrative. Um, in his book on the uh, book of Hebrews, in his commentary, I should say, Kent Hughes lists out the various employments and opportunities that angels have. And I, I want to talk about those for just a few moments. Number one, angels are given to the praise of God. That's, that's their primary purpose. They are given to praise the name of the Lord. They praise the Lord continuously. You may think of the angelic host in Isaiah 6, for example, the, the seraphim of God, a, a form of an angel that had six wings and with two wings it covered its face and two wings it covered its feet and with two wings it took flight and it called out in that place and the thresholds were so shaken by this call. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is the occupation of the angels to declare the glory and the praise of our Lord. We see that in uh, Isaiah, we see it in Revelation, we see it in the book of Job even, where the angels are called to praise the name of the Lord. Number two, angels minister to believers. Think about this, when, when Jesus was in the wilderness, when he was being tempted, and after his temptations, angels came to minister to Christ in that temptation. Think about when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he went to the cross for you and for me. He was filled with grief. He was sweating like great drops of blood. Angels came and ministered to him. Angels rejoice at the conversion of sinners. They are present with the church. They do all kinds of things. Angels minister to believers. Number three, angels announce God's messages to man. They, they come to bring announcements. Let me remind us of a few from Scripture. At the delivery of the law to Moses, angels were there announcing. Uh, angels announced the future to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 through 11. 
Uh, Gabriel announced the birth of John the Baptist. Angels announced the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ to shepherds. Who was it that was standing guard at the open tomb on early Sunday morning, Easter? It was the angels who were there to declare what had happened. Number four, angels will be God's agents in earthly judgment. They will be the ones calling God's elect and calling them with loud trumpets. Angels are directly in the activity of God's redemptive purposes. Personally, and and quite astonishingly, fifthly, angels are employed in the protection of God's people. What does Psalm 34, 7 say? It tells us that angels encamp around those who fear him. Angels encamp around those that love the Lord. Um, angels in Second Kings chapter 6, you can read this account. I reread it again this week. The Syrians to the north kept coming down and bothering the Israelites. They, they kept taking over and trying to take over cities here and there. Well, um, one time they came and surrounded the city where Elisha was because Elisha was the prophet of God who was being used to to uh, frustrate the enemy, the Syrians. And, and they came to his city. The Syrians came down from the north and surrounded his city, Elisha's city. The name of that city was Dothan. And, um, and they were ready to attack. They were closing in and they were ready to attack. And in the morning, uh, Elisha woke up and his servant was with him and he was like, Elisha, what are we going to do? We are doomed. And Elisha prayed that God would open the eyes of his servant. And the servant's eyes were opened and he saw on the mountain mighty men flashing in white with flaming swords. And immediately the Syrians retreated. I mean, this is biblical truth. This is the way that that we are protected by angels. I want to share with you one particular story that has of particular interest to me as well, because you may know that or may recall that Julie and I served in Kenya, East Africa, for a couple of years at Rift Valley Academy. Um, and in 1956, so um, I wasn't there for this, by the way. I'm not that old. I celebrated my 55th birthday this this uh, this past December, and my children seem to have um, felt like the floodgates can now come to call me old. And I remind them I was not here for this. But back in 1956 in Kenya, East Africa, there was this thing called the Mau Mau Uprising, uh, the Mau Mau Rebellion. This was a bloody rebellion. And on one night, a band of Mau Mau uh, Mau Maus came to the village of Lori, which is three miles away from Rift Valley Academy. What is Rift Valley Academy? It's a, a school to educate missionary kids. So on this campus, there were like 500 of us, you know, students, staff. Uh, it was a big operation. Three miles away is this town called Lori. Um, on this night in 1956, the Mau Maus came and surrounded the town of Lori and um, totally surrounded it and totally murdered every inhabitant of the town. Women, children, everyone. Nobody escaped. That same night, this band proceeded the three miles to Rift Valley Academy, where all these students and staff were. With torches and spears, the Mau Mau approached. And I, I heard this testimony from, uh, you know, one of the older teachers that was there. 
and these Mau Mau marauders approached Rift Valley Academy and they surrounded, they had torches, they had spears, clubs, etc., to do the very same thing that they had done with that small little village. And as they grew close and were tightening the circle to attack, all of a sudden they stopped. Their advance paused. And then quickly the, the pause in their advance led to a hasty retreat back to from where they came. Well, the Kenyan army was eventually called in and they apprehended uh, the Mau Mau, including the leader. And under testimony, um, you know, the judge at, at this at this trial said, did you in fact do, you know, kill the inhabitants of that town called Lori? Yes, we did. And he said, and, and what did you do next? And we had every intention to go to Rift Valley Academy and do the very same thing to all the inhabitants there. And the judge asked, why did you stop? And this is what the leader said. I'm not going to quote him, but this is basically what he said. He said, because as we prepared our final approach, all of a sudden, surrounding this school were these big white, uh, dressed in white, mighty men with flaming swords. And when we saw that, we ran for our lives. Now, I don't know if if that's hard to believe. It sounds pretty amazing, doesn't it? It sounds actually what God did for Elisha in his time. My point in sharing this story is simply to say that angels are powerful. They're fierce beings. They defend the glory of God. They are amazing beings. And yet, when you compare the relative glory of almighty angels, I shouldn't use the word almighty, but powerful angels, they're strong, they're, they're messengers of God. When you compare them to Christ, they pale in comparison. And that's what the author here is seeking to do. He, he may perhaps have been thinking, okay, what on earth do these, these dear folks, what might they hold in the greatest of awe? And perhaps in that culture and in that time, perhaps that's what it was. They, they held angels in a particular place of awe and reverence. Well, he goes on to say, well, okay, let's, let's take this by comparison. And let me compare the glory of Christ to the angelic being. And when you hold those two up together, one shines as vastly superior in every measure, and it's not the angels. So with the remainder of our time, I want to take, take us through just four ways in, that we see in here, four ways that we see the glory of Christ in his superiority over the angels. He is vastly superior in every way. First of all, we see he has, Christ has, a superior name. Verse 4. Look there with me if you would. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 3. It says this. After making purification for sins, he, Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Christ has a name which is superior to all other names. And we know that name to be Jesus, right? At the name of Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Every knee, every tongue will one day confess that. He's got a superior name. It's a a name above every other name. In particular, the author of Hebrews is drawing our attention to Christ, but not necessarily to that particular name, though that is his name, Jesus. He's drawing our attention to the fact that he is the Son of God. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, Today you are my, you are my Son. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, begotten of the Father, never made. Jesus Christ, the heir of all things, he is superior over all things. And the comparison and the contrast to his superior superiority, excuse me, to angels begins right here in verse 3 and verse 4. How do we see that? Look with me again. After making purification for sins. Now I ask you, can any angel make purification for sins? We know that that's not the case. No created being has the power to forgive sins. Only God has the power and the ability to forgive sins. And so right away he's saying, listen, let me draw your eyes to something here. This, this throne room image that we have in this passage, Jesus Christ himself, after making purification for sins, which no angel can do, he sat down. In other words, his service was complete. He sat down. It was done. It was finished. It was over. No angel could ever do that. He's immediately helping us to see the glory of the Son of God who gave himself for people like you and me so that we might, by faith in him, have redemption from our sins. He's, He's drawing our eyes to the glory of Christ. Secondly, second thing we see here, he has um, a superior position. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So, when there's no angel that is not occupied with the worship of Christ. That's again, that's, that's what they're given to do. They declare in great unity the holiness and the glory of Christ. That's what they're given to do. So Christ in his, is in a superior position because he is the one that receives the worship, not just of mankind, but the worship of the heavenly beings. He is vastly superior because he is the one who is in glory, the superior position of Christ. I want to read to you one other part of Scripture where we see this in a particular way. The book of Revelation holds for us a vision of realities yet to come, of things in the future when God reveals his glory upon the earth and when his Son, Jesus Christ, receives the glory. Um, This is Revelation 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, uh, the voice of many, what? The voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, I'm, I'm not real, I'm not a mathematician, but thousands of thousands sounds to me like millions. 
So there are millions of angels employed in the service of God, declaring the great praise of God. And if, if in Isaiah 6 there were a handful and the thresholds shook, can you imagine how glorious this image is? There are myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is the worth and the majesty and the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who deserves resplendent praise. Thousands of thousands all casting down their crowns before the one mighty Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And you see, the author is trying to say, don't dare turn away from Christ. He is the one who stands in authority over all things. When you turn your back on Jesus, you're turning your back on God. And they were tempted to turn their back on God. And he's saying, no, this is the one the angels worship. And every knee will bow to this same one. Don't turn your back on Jesus because you would be turning your back on God. He is the superior name. He has a superior place and position. Thirdly, he has a superior reign. His reign is superior. But of the Son, verse 8, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Again, in this imagery, this is a quote, by the way, all these are quotes from the Old Testament. This one in particular is Psalm 45. It pictures the Son of God seated again on his throne. This is, this is a coronation, if you will, of the King of the world. What we see in this passage is the characteristics, the nature of his sovereign and righteous rule over all things. And I just want to take a moment to point them out to us that we might, we might take comfort and be, be encouraged with these things. What, what are the characteristics that he brings out related to the righteous rule and reign of our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, he says, um, the scepter of uprightness. What, what is uprightness? It's the state of being honorable in all things. Wisdom that is pure and free from any form of contamination. What God says and what God does is always worthy of our approval, right? It's always worthy of our approval. What God says and what God does is perfect in every way. There's no reforming God. Everything that he says, everything that he does is perfect. He, he rules in uprightness. It also says he rules in righteousness. His, his rule is always marked by what is completely and wholly good. 
You will never encounter anything other than what is exactly and perfectly good. He himself is the standard of all that is good. He himself defines righteousness. And dear friends, lest these seem like just theological words, this means that every time we go to God, every time we read his word, every time we pray a prayer trusting in him, when our circumstances might be the opposite of what we would desire every time we go to God, what we get is uprightness. What we get is righteousness. We will never receive from God anything that is not perfectly good in every way. He will never counsel us poorly. He will never speak anything that is not true. When we think about, oh boy, my life, I, I need, I need to be anchored. We sang that last song this morning. Who, who is the anchor of our soul? It's Christ. We can trust Him because every time we go to Him, we get pure, unadulterated truth. He is the true King. He is the sovereign Lord. His righteousness rules over every created thing. He is the one to whom we can look. He has, it it doesn't just say those positives, it also declares something about his hatred of wickedness. Look again what it says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, some of us might be surprised to think that God hates anything. Well, he does hate wickedness. In fact, he must hate wickedness because to love righteousness means that we are going to hate wickedness and God in his goodness. God, the immutable one who can never change, he hates wickedness. And aren't we glad this morning that when we go to God, we don't have to wonder, is God going to, you know, kind of turn a little way and and allow some degree of wickedness, even the slightest degree? No, He hates wickedness, and he one day will punish wickedness. And here's the thing about the glorious news of the gospel. God poured out all of his wrath against the wickedness of sin for everyone who will ever believe on Jesus Christ. So so God just didn't sweep my wickedness under the carpet and say, hey, you know, you're a nice guy. It's okay. No, he poured out his wrath on my wickedness, but because I have trusted in Christ, he poured it out not on me, but on Christ. He, Christ substituted himself and purified me by his sacrifice. This is why we call the gospel the whole center of the Bible. This is why we never move on from the gospel, dear friends, because we remember what Christ has done for us. He took God's hatred of my wickedness on the cross. Therefore, I go free. And I never want to lose sight of that, right? I I want that to, to be my praise every morning when I wake up. Lord, what I deserve is death. That's what I deserve. But what you have granted to me is life through Jesus Christ. And that's why we celebrate the gospel every day, dear friends. Every day. We'd never lose sight of it. We'd go back and say, Lord, if you love me that much, to die on the cross, to take my punishment for me. Lord, now I gladly give my heart to you. 
What love loves me like that other than God, I ask you? Can my wife love me with a love like that? Oh, she loves me well. But her love, like my love, is not perfect. It has flaws. No love is like the love of God. And it's on display here in this image. You have loved righteousness. You have hated wickedness. Therefore, notice this this last phrase. I want you to make sure to get this. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness. Now, this is not the way we typically speak to you. Hey, you know, I want to anoint you with the oil of gladness. Um, no, get away from me if you say and This is what God does, though. He, it's a phrase that simply, we don't use this phrase. It's a, a phrase that simply means where God rules and reigns, there is great joy. So let's think about this. In heaven right now, with the angelic host, there's no sin there. There's no compromise with, with anything unrighteous in heaven. Is heaven a joyful place right now? You had better believe it. It's perfection. There's no tinge of sin at all. Where Christ reigns, there is the oil of gladness. That's what he's saying. And when you and I, by faith, enter into the kingdom of God, when, when he turns our heart from, from death to life, when he makes us to be born again, do you know what happens? There is joy given to us in our hearts. And it's real joy, not some plasticky thing. It's real joy that endures because that marks the righteous reign of our Lord. There's joy for us in this. He wants us to enjoy him. Christ, last one, Christ has a superior name. He has a superior position. He has a superior reign. And finally, he has a superior existence. Look at verse 10 through 12. I want to read it again. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed. But, he says it here, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. So let's drop in once more to this context, to what these people were dealing with. They were, the Roman Empire was continuing to grow. The influence of the Greek culture was continuing to grow. They were under the persecution of Nero. It was significant. It was at times overwhelming. And it seemed, I'm sure, to these writers, uh, to these readers, to the original audience, it must have seemed like this empire was going to take over the known world. In fact, it was. The Romans were building roads. They were building forms of communication. They were doing all kinds of things. And the vast Roman empire seemed to be sweeping up everything in its big gulp. And I'm sure that these dear people thought, I'm going to be all time, for all time, subjected, subjected to the authorities of Rome. Well, look at, look at the Roman Empire. It rose, oh, it rose strongly, but so it fell as quickly as it rose up. Communist Russia. At times, if you remember in the 80s, I remember as a kid in the 80s during the Cold War thinking, wow, communist Russia, I don't know who's going to stop these guys. 
they rose and they fell. Britain's empire, a vast empire around the world, just a few years back, the British empire has largely been dismantled. See, every kingdom built by man will rise, but it will also fall because their kingdom is not an eternal kingdom. Their kingdom will come and it will go. Not so of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says it right here. He said, you will remain. These things, they'll, they'll wear out. Our, just like our clothes wear out, the kingdoms of men will wear out. They'll rise and they'll fall. But there is one whose kingdom that will never fall. And his name is Jesus Christ. And, you know, why, why does that matter? What, what is the significance of the fact that God is immutable and his kingdom will never fail? Well, to make it very practical, it means something for you and me. The fact that God's kingdom uh, has never failed and will never fail means that he has and he will vanquish every last foe. That's what Christ will do. He will vanquish every last foe. Now, it, it seems to us there's plenty of foes for him yet to conquer. God conquers all. In fact, the imagery, uh, look at verse 13. Uh, he's again comparing and saying, hey, you know, the angels, they're still about the business of serving God. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The, the author is saying, no, the, the work of Christ is done. The work of the angels continues on. God didn't say to any of the angels, hey, you've done a great job. Your, your job is complete now. So just just sit down and I'll make, you know, your enemies your footstool. The, the imagery uh, that the original hearers would have seen and heard is that of, at times, in this culture, in this, this time frame, when some kingdom was conquered by another king, in an act of deferential humility, the leader would get down on his hands and knees, and the conquering leader would literally take his foot and put it on the neck of the king that he just conquered. It was a symbolic act of victory. The author is saying, never have I said that, has God said that to the angels, but of the Son. And the Son will vanquish every foe. Every foe. In fact, it's already done, though not fully and totally realized Yet, when Christ was raised from the dead, he vanquished every foe. That means that there is nothing, dear church, that you will ever experience that falls outside of the dominion and power of God. Praise the Lord. Nothing that you will ever encounter that falls outside the dominion and the power of God. Does that not encourage you this morning? There is nothing you will face that falls outside the dominion and power of the Lord. And that is expressly what he's seeking to say to these dear friends in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of their temptation to turn their back on Christ. He's saying you may, in following Christ, you may encounter hostility, You may encounter difficulty. You may suffer for the cause of Christ. 
It's true. But you will never encounter a solitary moment when anything that occurs to you happens and falls outside of the dominion and rule of your sovereign Lord. So hang on. This is what he's saying. Hang on to Christ. He is the one who rules over all things and his reign is totally supreme. Picture yourself, if you will, apart from your home. Maybe you've been shuffled into a new community against your will because of this persecution by Nero. You're bewildered, perhaps apart from your family and familiar surroundings. What would comfort you in those moments? The thought that that an angel might help you? Well, that may have been of some comfort, perhaps. But the ultimate comfort would not be in an angelic form. The ultimate comfort for these dear friends and for us today is that we worship the superior Christ. Is that he does have his reign and rule that extends over all, what does Paul say, all principalities and powers, all things present and things to come. His rule and reign extends to them all. And he is sovereign and he is good and every one of his judgments stand in upright power. We, dear friends, can trust him. Next week we'll look at the beginning of chapter 2 and chapter 2 starts off by saying, let me just read it, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. See, these these dear people were, were tempted to make Christ small. And a small Christ is one that we can perhaps put on the shelf through the week and and pull out on Sunday morning. No, he said, don't drift away. Don't have a view of Christ that is small. Have a view of Christ that is glorious. And so now as as we close, and I want to invite the band out uh, onto the stage to join me, um, I just want to remind you one last way that we see the glory of Christ as compared to the angels. The author doesn't reference this in his, in his uh, word here, but I, I just, in thinking about this, it came to mind this week. We can't even have the confidence to trust in angels because the very enemy of God, Lucifer himself, was once an angel. Now, thankfully, that rebellion is over. But even an angel himself was not immutable. An angel turned his back on God. And so when he's comparing and contrasting angels and Jesus Christ, as we see Christ more clearly, Christ just rises in glory. I'm thankful that angels are at work today. Thankful that that rebellion led by Lucifer is done. There are no more angels following him. But even angels themselves at that time were not immutable. They changed some. This morning when we come to Christ, what we receive is hope because he doesn't change. 
what we receive when we come to Christ is a superior name that is above every name. When we come to Christ, we get counsel that is sure and true. The one who created and sustained all things now comes to us. And here's where we're going to close. And he issues this invitation. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The same Christ that sits on this almighty throne, who rules and reigns and governs over all things, is the Christ that comes to you this morning and to me with whatever you got going on in your life. If you're weary this morning, this righteous, ruling, superior Christ comes tenderly to you. It says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. This powerful, merciful God is imminently here to minister his grace to you. Perhaps there are ways that you would say, you know, I've, uh, maybe like the Hebrews, I've forgotten about who Christ is. Maybe I've forgotten that, that he does rule and reign over all things, including doctor's diagnoses and financial troubles, sorrows and disappointments in life that continue to drag on and on. This mighty eternal king is is present with us here this morning and he invites you to come now. Now. He says, come. If you're one who labors, if if you're one who experiences weariness, if you find your soul at times heavy, weighed down with burdens, the invitation is now to come. Because when we come to Christ, He gives us rest. We're going to close with a song that invites us to be reminded of the rest that Christ wants to come to give. In the morning, when I rise, who do we want? When I'm alone, when the crowds are gone, when it's just me, when I'm tempted to be discouraged, depressed, experience anxiety, I go to Jesus, the one who stands in superior authority over all realities. And so we're going to turn to him now.